Thank you, worship team, and thank you, Matt, and uh, good morning, Grace Life Church. It is a joy to be with you here, and I'm going to pray in just a few minutes, but before I do that, uh, I have a couple of things that I want to cover. First of all, is Steve Ekman in here? There he is. Steve, you are leaving after this service, and you are going with Samaritans after the storm ministry to the golf curve under Florida up up uh, up north there, and you're going to be doing some work there. And I want to pray for you. Is anybody, are you going to be alone on that, or are you going to just join the Samaritans team of leadership? Ken Osborne, okay. I want to pause and pray for them. And while I do that, I also want to pray. You guys have been watching the news and seeing some of the global activity and, and conflict, and, and uh, they need our prayers. Uh, until the Prince of Peace comes, we'll see conflict and we'll see war, won't we? Uh, I do want to say, do want to say uh, regarding the Middle East and the stuff going on over there that a, uh, a brother, a friend we all know and love, that I know we've been asking about, wondering about, contacted me. He's fine. He was removed from where that conflict was happening. And so thank you for those that, that reached out and were praying about that. So I want to pray for Steve and I want to pray for what's going on in the Middle East. I want to pray for our time together. And I also want to welcome Joe and Marilyn Nugent uh, back to worship with us today. He served as an elder here for a few years. It's always great to, to see you guys, brother. So you guys say hi to him. Some new faces today, Joe and Marilyn, right? God's growing our church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to worship, to glorify you, to, to praise you, to acknowledge your goodness in our lives, your power, your sovereign um, reign over creation, fallen and yet being redeemed in Christ, and over all the, the wars and the conflict and the persecution of the church, the natural catastrophes and disasters, the relational conflict we face, sickness, economic turmoil. Lord, you reign supremely over all of this. None of these things take you by surprise. None of these things shocked you today or yesterday or any day. You are enthroned above all of it, Lord. You are our Almighty God, who who rules over history, you orchestrate and control and direct it uh, into your sovereign purposes, Lord, and and that brings great comfort to our hearts because we love you and we trust you, and you've proven yourself faithful. And I'm thankful after a disaster like a terrible storm or a hurricane hits and there's massive flooding and loss of life and displacement, that you have assembled people in your church, given them leadership, and and you are sending them to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And I pray for Steve and Ken and. Any others involved on this trip as they go up to North Florida, Lord, and, and sweep in after the storm and bring the love and, and hope of Jesus and bring some helping hands. And Lord, I pray for our friends in Israel and the things that are going on there. I pray that people would long to be released from the conflict and the, and the aggression and, and the and the hate, and they would look to Jesus. Lord, you are the Prince of Peace. You will end all conflict and opposition. And we long for the day when you will return and do all of that as you promised you have. And until that day, Lord, we pray for, for peace in Jerusalem. We pray for you to protect your people. They are the apple of your eye, and you have a future plan for them, as we'll see again today. And uh, help us, Lord, to just be hopeful, to be filled with hope, not to be cynical or pessimistic, Lord, or, or lose faith. And uh, Lord, I thank you for Joe and Marilyn, for them coming back. It's a, just a, a great reminder of all the things uh, you use them to accomplish here in a pioneering way 
as one of the first elders, and I uh, pray he would see some of the fruit of his ministry today, he and Marilyn both. And I pray for our time together. Would you bless the preaching of your word and hide me behind the cross? Lord, this is, uh, if, somebody, if someone were to just look at what's happening here, they would just see a, a man, a, just a simple man. Lord, uh, nothing special about me, standing up here with an open Bible, uh, talking to a crowd, and, and we welcome the people from, from home as well. But we know something radical and something powerful and something uh, transformational is taking place and, and only your spirit can accomplish that. Your word is powerful. It sanctifies. Your spirit uses your word. Would you come and visit us today and illuminate our mind and heart, Lord, and may we leave changed. Pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, well, I'm supposed to do the welcome today too, so I want to welcome everybody. Welcome to Grace Life. My name's Tommy. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're watching from home or if this is your first time to visit, we're grateful that you came. We have a, a Grace Life welcome that we say every week. And I would say just about everyone in this room or watching from home is going to find yourself in one of these categories. And you can say it with me as you, if you want to. It's became kind of tradition. It's our liturgy, so to speak. It's our chant. It's the way we start our service. So uh, can we get that up there? Here we go. To all who mourn and need comfort... To all who are weary and need rest, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and need strength, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever else will come, Grace Life Church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus Christ and offers you welcome. So you are most welcome here. That liturgy is taken from Romans chapter 15. I think verse 7, and it says, Welcome one another to the glory of God as you were welcomed in Christ. Christ welcomed us with open arms and all of our messiness and our weakness and our opposition, and He cleansed us and forgave us. And so we want our church to be wide open as well. well before we, we start the sermon, I have just a few updates. I told you last week that we are bringing on four new lay elders and our bylaws call for us to give a 21-day opportunity for you to interact with the names I'm going to give you in just a second and to pray about them and just to consider as you've seen them serving in the church, you've been around them, if, if anything that you see about them or their life uh, either concerns you, you have questions like, ah, that's a surprise, I could have never seen this person serving in that role, uh, we'd love for you to bring that to our attention. I don't think that's the case. We've had a nomination review committee that has sorted through all these names. It started with 16 men being nominated, and then it was narrowed down to eight men, and then it was narrowed down to five men, and then the last meeting we had as, as an elder, uh, we narrowed it down to actually four men. So uh, you asked the question, who can serve as an, as an elder? Who, who can lead God's church? And the Bible answers that question in three or four different passages by saying this, number one, men with desire. People who have an aspiration. First Timothy chapter 3, it says, if anyone aspires, and that means if anyone is looking to be serving in this position, if anyone is willing uh, to serve in the office of an overseer, he desires a good work, a noble, commendable work. Secondly, men with character. Men who are above reproach. And third, men who have gifting. It says men who are able to teach. They are competent to teach. That doesn't mean you're going to see him See every lay elder we have up here every Sunday. It might not even mean that's their greatest strength, but it means they are able to defend the faith, to articulate the gospel, and to detect falsehood. Okay? So, out of those three things, would you believe that 
the middle one, the character, is the one God is most concerned with. Not gifting as teaching, not just with the desire. There's 16 qualifications. I think we have another. Yeah, we do. There are 16 qualifications for an overseer. Hmm. You know what? This thing's all scrambled up here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you, there we go. There's 16 qualifications for an overseer, okay? Can you see all those? Aspiration and desire, above reproach, husband of one wife, and I could add a man, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. Did you know hospitable means love of stranger? That means you're willing to open your home. That, that's why another qualification is they're well thought of by outsiders because they're around them. They're around outsiders. They're not withdrawn, aloof, cold, detached. You know, they're not sheltering in place in their home and scared of the world. No, these men are out in the world. They're moving about. Their faith is on display. Respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. They're not pugnacious. They're not argumentative. They're not perpetually involved in conflict. When you see these names, you're going to see these things are true of these men. They're not a lover of money, so they're not greedy. There's no avarice. They manage their home well. They're not a recent convert, so they're not a noob, right? <laughs> and they're well thought of by outsiders. So those are the 16 qualifications that are listed. Uh, 14 of those are character. The other two are something you either have or you don't have. So that, that's really telling to me. We asked these men to look at a book together with us. Here we go. And it's uh, Church Elders by Jeremy Ryan. And he narrows down those qualifications to these. You want to be an, an elder. You exemplify godly character. You can teach the Bible. You lead your family well. You are male. And you are an established believer. So, all that being said, um, I want to present to you the men. And these, these slides are like one off from one another. There we go. The, so those are the families, the couples. Uh, the men are going to be nominated to be elders. And I'm giving you 21 days to pray about these men. That's three weeks, okay? That's three weeks. And also, it's, this is not just a be scrutinizing. This is, if you want to affirm like, yes, I'm not the person who nominated any of those or all of those, but I see these attributes. I see these characteristics. You can come to Bill... Roth, Steve Ekman, or myself, and, uh, and you can relay your affirmation. But those are the four people, Matthew Carr, Brent Carnathan, Don Drake, and Michael Wyckoff. And so we're going to give 21 days, and then Lord willing, the end of that time, uh, we're going to install them as lay elders of, lay elders of Grace Life Church. Um, now let me tell you what lay elder is, okay? Lay elder, it comes from the word laity, it means from among the people. I'm an elder, but I'm not a lay elder because you pay me. You pay me to serve as the lead pastor of this church. Now, technically, Matt won't be a lay elder because he's on staff as the discipleship pastor. But the lay elders we have will be Steve Ekman, Bill Roth, Don Drake, Michael Wyckoff, and Brent Carnathan. None of them get paid. And that's a good thing because they're not going to be yes men, right? They're going to tell us the truth. Uh, the Bible says that the church should operate and be governed by a plurality of godly men who are united, who are godly, who will shepherd the flock, who will teach the Bible, uh, and who will you know, bring resolution to conflict. So these are the four 
candidates we're putting forward for the next 21 days, uh, and then in three weeks from now, we're going to install them. So our bylaws say, last week I had to give you a seven-day notice. Today I'm giving you the final notice, so you have 21 days to interact. I hope that's pretty clear. Again, it always feels clumsy doing this from the pulpit, but I wanted to be faithful to you. I'm very excited. Do you know how many elders we will have uh, in 21 days, Lord willing? We'll have seven. That's a good number, isn't it? That's God's number of completion. So I'm very excited. Our church is growing, and that means our shepherding needs are growing. I certainly can't do it all. I'm grateful that I do not have to be bivocational. You know, there are a lot of pastors that plant churches, and they have to hold down a part-time job, in some cases a full-time job, and their attention is really uh, diverted and, and scattered. I'm thankful that this church is a giving church, a generous church, a sacrificial church, and you've made it where not only... Do I not have to be bivocational, but we could hire another discipleship pastor. We could, we could hire Diane Hendricks. Uh, we could hire Megan Hendricks. Not Megan Hendricks, Megan Amador. Sorry about that. Brain went dead for a minute. Um, so I'm thankful our church is growing and God is providing. Amen? All right, so let's move, let's move into Romans chapter 11. And Nicole, you'll have, to, you'll have to help me up there. I don't think it's going to work today with the remote. I'll try one more time. Here we go. All right, maybe it's going to work. So we're going to be in Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read the verses. We're going to start in verse 25, and we're going to read through verse 36. Are you guys there? All right. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And then here's how he ends the chapter. And this is really a test. If your understanding of those last several verses doesn't lead you to this doxology of praise, then I think we've misunderstood or minimized, reduced what Paul's trying to tell us here. Verse 33, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Well, we started with an outline last week, and I didn't finish. I'm going to try my best to finish today, because this is all about a mystery that Paul is unveiling for us. It's a revelation that the Apostle Paul was given as an inspired apostle in that calling, and serving and functioning somewhat like a prophet. He has been in the last three chapters telling us what is going on with the nation of Israel. What is God doing 
with these Hebrews? What's going on with the Jews? Because it seems like, you know, the Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. And Jesus came and he was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah, Yeshua. He came for his people, the house of Israel. He called to himself 12 apostles. As far as we know, there's some argument on one or two. They were all Jews. And yet, by and large, as a nation, the Jewish people rejected him. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. John chapter 8, verse 32. He said, if, if you knew me and you received me, uh, you would love me for I came from my father, but you are not from me. So they rejected as a nation, as a whole, they rejected Jesus, right? There's a remnant. There were pockets of Jews who came to Christ. But by and large, the Jews have been on the outside of the church and the Gentiles have been on the inside. And that's exactly opposite what we would, we would expect. And it seems to be the exact opposite of what God's plan was all along. So the question Paul is answering is, what in the world is going on? And part of his answer is, hey, there's a mystery here and I'm going to tell you about it. Now that word mystery doesn't necessarily mean something enigmatic, something obscure, something that has, that's difficult or puzzling to grasp. What he means by that is a revelation. I'm telling you something that God is doing that now he's going to make very clear to you. So that's point one. Paul is unveiling this mystery for us. Uh, number one, so that we won't be proud. Because here's, here's sometimes what happens. The Gentiles saw themselves on the inside and the Jews on the outside. And what did they start to conclude? God loves us better, right? God cares about us. We're the people of his choice. He's forgotten the Jewish people. He's done with them. He's turned his back on them. And now he's crazy about us. As a race of people, as an ethnicity, as a people group, we're better. We're superior to them. We're spiritually elite to them. It's very easy. I told you last week, I don't want to kick the dead horse here, but I do want to review for people that weren't here. One of the reasons that Paul's unveiling this mystery is because he knows we tend to get proud if we're left in ignorance, right? He wants to show like, hey, God did not abandon the Jews, number one. Number two, he didn't open a door for you to come in because you're better. And this is something God has repeatedly told people in the Bible. Do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 9, the nation of Israel brought through the wilderness for 40 years, and finally they were brought into the promised land, the land of Canaan. And Moses on the, on the plains, of Moab, plains of Moab, before they go and crossed the Jordan River, he says, hey, I got a word for you. I want to warn you. You're about to go in and inherit this land. You didn't plant the vineyards. You know, you didn't till the crops. You didn't build these cities. God's giving all of this to you. But be careful. Don't you dare say in your heart or think in your heart that God's giving you this land because you're more righteous than they are. You know that passage? He says, because you're a rebellious and a stubborn people and you, and you have stiff necks. God was warning the people of Israel, don't you think that I'm blessing you and rescuing you and giving you this land because you're somehow more righteous than the people that are in there? You're not. It's because of my love and my grace and my mercy. And Paul is really giving this same warning here to the Gentiles. He's saying, don't you dare think in your heart don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you're somehow superior. And we do that, friends. I told you last week, we still find ourselves doing that. Listen, pride is a very subtle sin. I know that Satan uses anger. He uses lust. He uses greed. He uses hate. Those are some of his favorite tools in his toolbox. But I want to tell you this. The toolbox itself is always pride. 
That's the first sin, that Lucifer fell from heaven. I will become like the Most High, right? Satan got kicked out of heaven. And some theologians agree that that is the sin underneath every other sin is pride. It's elevating yourself, thinking too highly of yourself. Thinking, I'm elite, I'm better, I'm worthier, I'm smarter. Now that can take a form in individuals, and it can also take place in groups of people. A family can be proud and think they're superior. Have you ever known a family that was just snooty and uppity and thought they were the cat's meow? You ever thought that? You ever felt that? Maybe you're a family that's felt that way. Like, you know what, man? Who do they think? Look at my kids. Look at my house. And not just wealth, but I'm so respectable and dignified and cultured and sophisticated. And they're, ah, yuck. You know, who would want to live in their house? It can take a shape in the the form of a family. Listen, businesses can be elite, right? Nobody wants to go into a business that's, I mean, pride can be a good thing. I know we see bumper stickers, the power of pride. Ah, you got to be careful with that. It It can infiltrate families. Did you know it can infiltrate churches too? You know, churches can be proud. We've got the right doctrine. We believe all the right things. Denominations can be proud. And I'll tell you this, God hates that. God hates pride. In fact, there's two different places in the Bible where pride and Satan's activity are joined together like peanut butter and jelly. One of them is in James and the other one is in 1 Peter 5. Let me read one of those to you. James 4, 6 and 7. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's interesting. Interesting combination. God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. And then he says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. How do you resist the devil? By resisting pride. And he says the same thing in 1 Peter. He says, be watchful, be vigilant, because your enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he says, resist him being, excuse me, being humble. So pride can infiltrate a family, it can infiltrate a business, it can infiltrate a church, a denomination, it can infiltrate a nation too, and a people group, and terrible, dangerous, dark, deadly things happen. And God doesn't want that, and Paul doesn't want that. So he is reminding us, look, God brought you Gentiles into the church, not because you're better. In fact, you read the history, the catalog of history, We had absolutely no hope in the Old Testament. Do you realize that? It's like things have reversed. In the Old Testament, it was all about the nation of the Jews. You would see pockets of conversion here and there, right? You would see a Rahab come in, or you would see a Jethro come in, or you would see a revival out of nowhere, like the city of Nineveh, right? But by and large, it was the nation of the Jews, and Gentiles were outside of the covenant. Paul says that in Ephesians. We were aliens, strangers to the commonwealth of Israel, in darkness, without hope, without God in the world. So we had no, we had no right. <laughs> we, we had no privilege to be a part of the kingdom of God. It was by His sheer grace and mercy. And Paul is reminding us, you stand by faith. There's nothing superior about you. When we start to think that way, we have forgotten the doctrine of justification by faith alone and Christ alone. So Paul is reminding us, Don't you dare be proud about your position. It's not of works. It's not of pedigree. There's not some kind of impressive accomplishment about you Gentiles. You did nothing. God just extended His grace to you. Don't grow proud and arrogant about the Jews, especially the unbelieving Jews, because God's not finished with them. So that's the first thing that Paul's wanting to do by unveiling this mystery is 
to keep us from being proud, to, to, to keep us humble. The second thing I told you is so that we're not ignorant. So that we're not ignorant. He says, there's a reason why the nation of Israel is outside of the church right now. And that reason is they've been experiencing blindness and hardness. They've been desensitized to the truth. God has brought on them. I know this is a hard saying, but God's sovereignty is highlighted in this passage. He says, it has come upon them. What has? This blindness, this hardness, just like Pharaoh was mentioned in chapter 9. The Jewish nation of Israel opposed Jesus, rejected Him, crucified Him, and they persecuted the apostles. And so there's a judgment that's taken place on them. It's a judicial hardening. They can't see the truth. They're resistant to it. And even God's punishment to them in 70 AD, the Romans raised their city to the ground and burned it, and they were scattered abroad. Paul is saying this is... This is the mystery. This is what God has been doing in the world. I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Not only should you not be proud and think you're better, you should be ignorant and say, I don't know what in the heck's going on in the world. No, God is revealing to you. This is His plan. This has been His plan all along. All along. A blindness has come upon. But here's the, the best part of the, of the mystery. He says this blindness is only partial. It's only partial. Look at that. It's in verse twenty. 25, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So he says, this hardening, this opposition, this rejection of the gospel is partial. It's not total. It's not every Jew. And it's not permanent. It's not for all times. It has an expiration date on, the, on it. In the future, when this age of the Gentiles is complete and full, and that word fullness it can mean fat, it can mean rich, it can mean overflowing with blessing. When, when the freedom that people experience when the gospel is preached has reached its fullness with the Gentiles, then this hardening will be lifted. God will soften the very hearts that have been hardened. He will open the eyes that have been blinded. And Jews will no longer be outside of the church. They will be grafted back in to this native tree they were a part of, right? We were the wild olive branch that was grafted in contrary to nature. They were broken off because of unbelief, but they're going to be grafted back in. That's what Paul is saying here. And then he explains, not only does he not want us to be ignorant about that, uh, when it's going to happen, or excuse me, we don't really know when it's going to happen, uh, how it's going to happen. He doesn't want us to be ignorant about how it's going to happen. Look at verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he's saying the Jews are going to be restored. They're going to be saved. They're going to come to Jesus. But Paul is very careful here. I know there's a teaching out there. I mentioned it last week. That says, you know what? There's, a, there's this two-way covenant. The Gentiles are saved by grace and faith. And the Jews are going to be saved by their original covenant. They're going to obey the law. And God's going to respect that and bring them in. No, he's not. No, he's not. Nobody has ever been saved apart from faith in Jesus and repentance from sin. That's the only way any Israelite will ever be saved. And he, he shows us this by saying the deliverer will come from Zion. The deliverer is Jesus, the Redeemer. He will banish ungodliness. That's repentance. He will turn ungodliness away from his people, from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. So 
a Jew will be saved the same way that a Gentile will be saved. One more comment on this, and then we'll move to the final point, the thing I really want to camp out, camp out on today. He says this fullness of the Gentiles, and I told you that's this richness. You know, he does mention that, that one of the ways he's going to bring this about, he's mentioned it earlier, is that the Jews are going to grow envious. They're going to see how enriched we are as Gentiles. We've been saved by Jesus. We've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, correct? There's this spiritual wealth that we have. We're free. We're adopted. We're justified. We're in the family. We're at the table. The greatest possible thing that could happen to us has because of Jesus. We're in Christ. Now listen, wherever the gospel has been preached, there has been a freedom that's come in. You can trace it throughout history. Every tribe, every village, every people group, every city that has ever received as a whole the gospel, oppression and um, tyrant, uh, tyranny has, has been eradicated. And you can go back all the way to when Gentile groups received the gospel. Superstition and idolatry were removed. You remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, you receive the word of God, you turn from idols to the living God and are waiting for His Son from heaven, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So things like idolatry, things like cannibalism, things like, you know, all the widows get burned on a pier with their husband's dead body. All of those things were removed. I know, it's crazy, but you look at it, the gospel brought with it this freedom. What Paul is saying is, when the age of the Gentiles has reached its fullness, its completion, I believe what he's teaching here is that the Jews are going to look at that and they're going to see this richness and they're going to want that. They're going to be envious and jealous in a good way, Paul is teaching here. And they're going to want in on that. And God's going to let them in on that. He's going to open their eyes, soften their heart, and He's going to bring them into the kingdom. He's going to exert this powerful influence. And they're going to turn back to their Jewish Messiah. And they're going to have faith like a child. That's what He's teaching here. So this mystery being unveiled protects us from pride. It protects us from ignorance. And here's the, the last thing that I want to talk about. It protects us from being cynical. It protects us from being cynical. What do I mean by that word? And Lord, help me to communicate this, this clearly and powerfully today. Have you ever felt just cynical about the world? You know, it's okay to be honest. You look around and you think, man, things are terrible. And they don't look like they're getting any better. I don't, th I don't see anything hopeful or benevolent happening in the world. I see uh, partisan politics. I see cultural rage. I see economic turmoil. I see the worst of the worst on the news. Let me tell you something, man. If you want to be cynical, then you tune in to every single newscast you can find. You go ahead and tune in and <laughs> you tell me if you're going to hear any good news about what God is doing, what His activity is throughout redemptive history. You're not going to hear any of that. You know what? There's good money to be made keeping you cynical and keeping you afraid. Did you know that? That's where Satan wants you, and that's where the world leaders want you, is to be afraid and dependent on them, all this dribbling news that comes out of their 6 o'clock forecast, right? It's easy to be cynical. It's easy to look around and not see anything hopeful happening. I have met, as a pastor, some of the most cynical people in the world. And look, I don't blame them for it. I've been there myself. It's easy to get in that position. I think one of the things that Paul is doing by unveiling this mystery is showing us, look, you know, in the early 1600s, Shakespeare wrote a play called Macbeth. And there's a famous line from that play. After Lady Macbeth 
dies, and the king's army is marching uh, against her husband. He says this. He has one of the most cynical and jaded and disillusioned uh, quotes in, in the history of literature. He says this. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury and signifying nothing. He said that in the 1600s, and look, it's 2023, and that's still around. People feel that way. People believe that way. They look around and they say, there is no redemptive purpose to history at all. Even secular historians have spent hours and written tomes of volumes, and they say, you know what? There's no purpose. There's, There's no order. History seems random. It seems like this eclectic uh, clutter of just random serendipitous happenings and there's no order to it or direction. It's cyclical. And Paul's saying, no, history is not cyclical. It's not left to chance. There's no such thing as serendipity. History is linear. God is directing and moving history along his planned course. And nothing can thwart that history. Nothing can take away from that history. This is what God is doing in the world, and this is what He is going to do in the world. You can set your clock to this. This is not, I love the fact that earlier Paul says God could save Israel. It could happen. He could do it. And then he says, you know what? He may save Israel. It's possible. It's even, pro- it's even probable. probable. But you know what he's saying here in this last section in, in chapter 11? He's saying God will do it. It's going to happen. This is a prophecy. This is Paul not giving his thoughts on something, not having a dialogue. This is the Apostle Paul saying this is the direction that God is taking history. He is orchestrating it. He is sitting enthroned. God is involved in the most minute detail. Like R.C. Sproul says, there's no maverick, there's no maverick molecule out there that's operating rogue. You know, God is controlling all of these things, the big things, the small things. And because of that, we can be hopeful. We can be hopeful. I've met some of the most cynical people in the last 10 years. And there's lots of reasons for that. One of them is the news. I met, I met a guy that was a security guard. I was trying to sell my old Nissan truck over 10 years ago. And I never used Craigslist. I used Craigslist, and I was a little bit skeptical. I'm like, man, some of these scammers are going to rip me off. And very quickly, this guy said, hey, look, I'm interested in your truck, but I want to meet you in a public place. I'm like, all right, good. Yeah, I do too. I don't want to get robbed, hit over the head, and somebody take my truck, you know? Um, and he said, so let's meet up here at Panera Bread in Ormond Beach. So I met up there. This guy was one of the biggest people I've ever seen in my life. He was six foot six, and he weighed like, I don't know, 300 pounds, and it wasn't fat, if, if you take my meeting. And I'm like, dude, why did this guy want to meet me in public? I'm the guy that should have called for the public meeting here, not him, right? And then I got out, and the guy had his head cocked. You ever met somebody, they're cynical, they're like, and he looked at me, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not very impressive or intimidating, am I? You know, I'm what, five foot ten on my skinniest day? And I walked up, and I'm like, I'm Tommy. And he said, I'm so-and-so. And uh, no, he introduced himself, and I said, I'm Tommy. He said, yeah, I know. I said, oh, you do? He said, yeah, you're Tommy Clayton. You're 40-whatever years old. You're a pastor at Riverbend Community Church, and you're the family pastor. He said, I watched your two last sermons. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. I'm like, how do you know all that about me? He said, he said, because I'm a security guard at a prison. He said, and I don't trust anybody. He said, bro, I could, I've seen the worst of the worst of the worst of human nature, and there's no, nobody's good. There's nobody good in the world today. He said, for all I know, the next meetup I have on Craigslist, somebody's going to slice my throat. And I'm like, you know what, dude? That guy's cynical. Why is he cynical? Because he's been at a prison, and in his mind now, nothing against people that have been in prison. Hey, we all got a story. He thinks he's seen the worst of the worst of the worst and that nobody is trustworthy. 
Some cops get cynical, don't they, chief? Because they see so many terrible things happening. Got any teachers in here? Any of you teachers? Do you find yourself getting cynical? Like, kids are going to do the bare minimum. That's all they're going to do. And you know what? I'm the only teacher that cares. I invest. <laughs> I, I like pour my soul and body into these. Nobody else does. I've met nurses and doctors who are cynical. I've met lawyers who are cynical. Listen, guys, we live in an age of disillusionment and disappointment. And people are jaded and they're sad and they don't have any hope. And I want to tell you something. The remedy for all of that is right here. It's not watching the 6 o'clock news. And listen, I think we should be aware of what's going on in the world. We shouldn't have our head in the sand. But I'm telling you, man, if you set your clock to what a talking head tells you on a TV screen or the latest podcast, you're going to be jaded and cynical and disillusioned. You're going to believe the worst about the world that you're in, and you're going to see no redemptive activity from God at all. It's funny, man. My wife and I, when we planted this church, man, it's okay for you to know the dirt on your pastor. I used to check. There's this website. I don't even know if it's still around. Drudge Report. Anybody ever check that thing? Don't raise your hand and say if you have. I used to check that thing every day, multiple times a day. And I want to tell you, it's the worst website in the world for, for cynical people. It's like, this is going to, you know, thievery, murder, war, conflict, political corruption at the highest level. At the, there's no, absolutely no good news on that at all. And I told Sarah, I grew convicted. I said, man, I feel so jaded and disillusioned. I'm like, why don't we take a break from the Drudge Report, which is, it's named after Matt Drudge. That's an appropriate name, right? You feel like you're getting drudged through the worst of the worst. We took a break from that for a month. And I'm telling you, man, optimism like came alive in me. I'm like, man, this is interesting. And I said, you know what? Let's not, let's not watch the news either. And like, it went even higher. And then you know what came next? I said, you know what? I'm on Facebook. I have an account. It's probably important as a church planner and as Grace Life Church to have an account, but I'm not going to get on social media anymore. And I took a break from social. In fact, I have a Facebook account. I don't know what you call if it's active, inactive. I'm hardly ever on there. If you post things and my name's hashtag, I'm sorry if I don't answer. It's because I'm not on there. And look, I'm not saying it's evil. Don't. I hate legalism, right? That's fine. If that's a useful tool and staying connected, it has some redemptive values. But for me, I didn't need to be on it anymore. So we took a break from the news. We took a break from those websites. We took a break from social media and committed instead you know what? I'm going to give more attention to this. And it, it was nothing less than transformational. And that's exactly what the, I'm not saying, hey, be like Tommy, be like your pastor. I still struggle with bad news. And I feel like I sink if I start looking around horizontally. But what the Apostle Paul is showing us here and telling us here, man, this is the best news in the world. This is going to happen. My thing messed up. You can take that off. That's depressing me to look at that. Is it you? <laughs> <laughs> the Apostle Paul is telling us, look, God is in control of history. Aren't you glad that He is and that we're not? Man, we would have made a mess. We already have made a mess of history. The best that we've had to offer. <laughs> you know, that's why I think, in, I think it's in Galatians. Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to come and redeem those who were under the law. When the fullness of time has come, God has perfect timing for everything. Just when the world looks the darkest, the most hopeless, there was a reason why Jesus 
waited as long as he did before the incarnation. He wanted us to have the best and the brightest and the most cleverest and the most powerful leaders the world has ever seen. All the philosophers, the Alexander the Great, the conquerors, the minds, the philosophers, the politicians, maybe the evangelical leaders. And what was the world like when Jesus came? As dark as it has ever been, right? That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Where are the wise men? Where are the scribes? Where are the debaters of this age? Where are all the people that are going to solve all the problems? Oh, that's right. The world is worse because of them, not better. So God waited until the fullness of time and He sent His Son. And what He's saying is, He's waiting again. There's this linear history that's taken place. He's waiting again for the fullness of Gentiles. He's bringing that about. And then, as a nation, Israel will turn again to their Messiah. And they will be reborn. And he's saying it's going to be so phenomenal. It's going to be the great... I told you last week it would be like trying to compare the waves at New Smyrna Beach to a tsunami. You know, death excluded from the tsunami. It's non-comparable. The Great Awakening, the Protestant Reformation is going to pale in comparison with this sweeping revival that we're going to see when the nation of Israel is reborn. He says it will be like life back from the death. It's going to be something to see. And I told you, I hope that I'm around. To see that happen. He doesn't tell us when it's going to happen. He doesn't get into all the details uh, prophetically of when this is going to happen. He just tells us that it will happen. You can set your clock to it. You can bank on it. I think another reason that some people get jaded is because, and man, I debated on whether to, whether to bring this up as a point or not. In a way, it feels like I'm making fun of me. I'm making fun of preachers. But since I've been alive, I was born in 1975. Um, and I've seen a lot of wacky stuff go on in the church. I can remember when I was, I would have been 12, 13 years old. It was 1988, and there was a book that was written. You guys remember this? And it was 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. You guys remember that book? It didn't age well, okay? It didn't age well at all. So, so think of this. Let's say that you're an outsider, or you're just marginally connected to a church, and this trusted evangelical leader writes a book, and it says, hey, 88 reasons why Jesus is going to come back this year. And that year comes and goes, and Jesus didn't come back. How would you feel, how would you feel toward the rest of the prophecies that evangelical leaders talk about? What's the answer? Skeptical. Sus, right? You'd be like, yeah, fool me once. Uh, shame, on, shame on me. Fool me, fool me. I messed that up, didn't I? Somebody else did that once. Anyway. Uh, people grow jaded and distrustful. Would you believe this guy had the audacity? Seriously. So his predictions from 1988 failed, but hey, no worries, man. This guy wrote another book. He wrote another book in 1989. Uh, no, it was the last slide. Uh, the other slide. No, the other slide. That's okay. <laughs> okay, listen, here's my point. That guy kept writing books. And every single one of his predictions were wrong. And so you know what effect that had on people at large? And even people in the church, they were very jaded. And they were very distrustful. And they were very cynical. And it was a long time before everybody could try to say something biblical and accurate about prophecy. And anybody would give them a hearing. And Paul is saying, look, don't be jaded. Don't be cynical. Uh, that's why I don't think the Apostle Paul is dealing with, with the return of Jesus. In this passage, every time Paul talks about the return of Jesus, he speaks in unmistakably clear language and tell you exactly what he is talking about. He doesn't mention anything here about any millennium, okay? He doesn't mention a rapture here. 
Those are things that are dealt with in other passages. You know what the Bible does say? It says, no man knows the day or the hour. Not even the Son of Man knows. Not even the angels in heaven. Only the Father knows. In fact, check this verse out. This is from Acts chapter 1. Do we have that verse up there? One of the very last things that Jesus addressed before He ascended to heaven was a question His apostles had. Check this out. This is after the resurrection, before He ascends to heaven. Jesus said this, So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has what? What's that word? Fixed. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what is Jesus doing here? He's addressing their question and He's redirecting their efforts and their attention. He's saying, look, the second coming is fixed. It's going to happen. I've told you about that. I've given you all the details you need. It's not for you to try and ascertain the day or the hour. Here's where I want your attention. You will be given power on high and you will be my witnesses and I'm going to send you into all the world and I'm going to be with you. So listen, we can't be cynical. We can't be disillusioned. We can't be jaded. Jesus has given us a mission. This is the age that He is at work in the world. He is rescuing for Himself a people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation, right? Revelation chapter 5 says heaven's going to look like a bag of Skittles one day. It really is. Every color, every ethnicity, every race, every people group, every language and culture is going to be represented in heaven minus the sin. That's what God is about. So history is linear and God is sovereignly working all these things out. So He does not want us to grow cynical. He does not want us to grow jaded and disillusioned. Have you ever felt that way though? Here's what, here's what some people do. Um, they say, okay, so God is going to take care of all the big stuff. That's fixed. But all the things going on in my life, He's probably way too busy. My friends, when you read the Bible, it is astonishing God's providence. Nothing is serendipitous. Nothing is left to chance. There's no such thing as luck. Spurgeon once said this, the Prince of Preachers. He was called that in, in London. He said, fate is blind, but providence has eyes. God sees everything. He sees everything. You know, the Bible says the hair on our head is numbered. Does that sound like a God who's disinterested, who has just wound up this clock at creation and is just sitting back and maybe he's angry or maybe he's preoccupied or he's cold and aloof? Not at all. God knows the hair's on your head. The Bible says his eye is on the sparrow, right? He sees everything. If you look at the life and ministry of Christ, it is staggering. It is staggering the details of Jesus' ministry. There was a woman in John, uh, is it in John's gospel? No, it's in Mark's gospel, chapter 5. There was a woman who had an issue of blood flow, which made her, if you know the, the customs, the Hebrew customs, if, you, if a woman had an issue of blood flow, she was considered unclean. And to be unclean was a terrible thing. You couldn't touch another human being. You couldn't worship in the temple or the tabernacle. You had to be outside of the camp for seven days. You were perpetually unclean. You couldn't embrace your husband. You couldn't kiss your children. You couldn't worship with the corporate body, right? She was like that for 12 years. 12 years. And in Mark chapter 5, Jesus is really occupied 
Not preoccupied, he's occupied. His attention is on uh, the daughter of a man named Jairus. He's been invited to come and heal her. She's sick. She's dying. She's on the brink. And he's on the way, and there's a clamor, and there's a crowd. And you remember the story? Out of nowhere, this woman crawls up. She must have crawled because she was so ashamed. She crawled on her hands and feet through the crowd, and she grabbed the hem of Jesus' garment. And she said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, he can make me whole again. And she wanted to touch him and then exit, right? Which is kind of what we all want to do. We want Jesus to help us, and then we want to get away. And Jesus stopped, said, time out. Who touched me? Somebody touched me. I felt power go out. Do you remember this? And he asked his disciples, and said, are you crazy, Lord? <laughs> There's like a million people here touching you, brushing up against us, and you say, who touched me? You know what Jesus was doing? He was serving notice to that woman and to that crowd and to us. He's saying, nothing escapes my attention. This poor woman has been unclean for 12 years, and her time has come. She has not escaped my notice. He says, stand up and tell your testimony. And she told everything. Jesus cares about the people that feel the most marginalized and peripheral and pushed aside, the outcast, the downcast. He cares. There's another instance of a lady who was a widow in the city of Nain. And she was about to bury her, her only son. Now imagine this. You're a woman in Israel. You're a widow. So already you're in trouble. You know, they didn't, they didn't have social security back then. They didn't have a government that would come and take care of you. You were at the mercy of your family and friends and loved ones. So she was a widow. She was in trouble. Oh, and then her only son died. Now who's going to provide for her? Now who sees her? Nobody would have cared for her. So there's a funeral beer. She, it's, it's, it's in procession. It's outside the city gates. And would you believe at precisely the moment that widow is walking beside the casket of her dead son, who happens to walk by her, but Jesus. You remember the story? It's phenomenal. And Jesus is a funeral crasher, right? He walks up. He looks at the widow. He knew exactly what had been going on. And you remember what he does? He does the unthinkable. What a Jew could never do. He touches a dead corpse. And he says, daughter, I say to you, or excuse me, young man, not daughter, get my stories, get my miracles mixed up here. He says, young man, I say to you, arise. And that man that young man, he wasn't a little kid. He was a, he was a man who was able to provide for his mother. It says Jesus presented him back to his mother. And, you know, all the things we could read about that miracle. Okay, Jesus has power. He can resurrect. He can raise people from the dead. Yes, yes, yes. Amen. Do you know what I see in that? <clears throat> Jesus sees so often what we don't see. The, the most minute detail that escapes our nose. People that are hurting. People that are suffering from addiction. We look around and we get cynical and jaded. Nobody's going to help them. Jesus sees them. This tells us He is directing history to its ultimate course. And that means every minute detail is included in God's overarching providence. Everything. Nothing escapes His notice. That's why whenever a, a Jew in the book of Psalms would forget that truth and they would say, God, where are you? Wake up. Do you not see? Your people are being trampled. Your heritage is being destroyed. You know what would help them come around? They would start going back and rehearsing their history. They would remember, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. God created the world. He's sustaining the world. He's in control over the world. He, he, he delivered us from Egyptian bondage 400 years. He brought us safely through the wilderness. You remember all those stories, Psalm 78 and the like? They do what, what we need to be doing. We need to retrace our history. 
God is not distant or cold or aloof or uninterested. He is working right now. He is active in yours and my life. And he's directing history to its ultimate course. Which is going to be, there's going to be this sweeping awakening, revival, restoration, salvation. All Israel will be saved. That's not teaching universalism. Jesus in another place said, straight is the gate, narrow is the way that leads to life. There are few that find it. Some people have already faced judgment and others will. What he's teaching is, as a group, as a nation, the Jewish people will return to Jesus. I want to read this and then we're going to close. No, you know what? We're going to close now. I'm going to stop there because what I want to do next week is I want to show you why this leads us into the praise and the worship and the doxology that the Apostle Paul talks about in verses 33 through 36. But let me ask you a question. In closing, let me ask you a question. I've told you before, the last two weeks, if you are in Christ, the greatest thing that could ever happen to you has happened to you. And I've also told you that if you are in Christ, the worst possible thing that could ever happen to you happened to somebody else on your behalf so that it wouldn't have to happen to you, right? Jesus suffered the wrath of God. He absorbed all of God's judgment so that you and I could have a place at God's table. Are you in God's kingdom? Are you, at, are you sitting at the table? Are you in His family? Have you done what this redemptive letter is telling you? Have, have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted Jesus? Because listen, God saves people the same way. Repentance, that means turning from sin. It's a word that metanoia, it means a change of mind that leads to a change of belief that leads to a change, change of life. To repent from your sin, to change course. To say, Jesus, I want you to be king. I'm not going to be in control of my life anymore. I've seen how that's gone. Not good. It's taken me to dark, distrustful, cynical places. I want you on your throne to be the Lord of my life. I want to be in your kingdom. I want to be in your family. I want to be your child. Matt mentioned a prayer. and I know exactly what he's talking about. I came from the South, brother. I prayed the, quote, sinner's prayer. And you know what? It is good to pray to Jesus and to cry out to Him and to repent um, and say, Lord, please save me. Spurgeon talked about that once. He said, there's not a rehearsed formula for repenting. Groan. <laughs> Groan and say, Lord, help. I'm at the end. There's nothing good I see in my future unless you save me and you rescue me and you forgive me of my sins. I'm filled with guilt. I'm filled with doubt. I'm filled with darkness. I'm empty and I'm guilty. Have you done that? Why, what is keeping you from coming to Christ? He won't end your life, friends. He'll, your life will just be beginning. The Bible says that He came to give life and to give it more abundantly. And He has tasted death for every, for every man. Have you came to Him on His terms and not yours? That's the message that I'll leave you with today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank, thank You so much, God. Thank You for these mysteries we see in the Bible that are unfolding. Thank you that you are not keeping these things secret, Lord. That's what distinguishes Christianity. One of the things that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion keeps secrets and has things reserved for the elite members. Christianity is open. There's no secrets. We shout it from the housetop. It's open. It's free. It's for everyone. This is a mystery that Paul is unveiling for all people to know and see what God has been doing, what He is currently doing, and what He will continue to do in the world. He has consigned all to unbelief so that He may have mercy on all, Lord. And we'll talk about that next week, Lord, helping us. I pray, Lord, every single person in this room 
would turn to you, God. They would see you as the only hope and redeemer and deliverer for them and that you would work in their heart in such a way, Lord, that they would give themselves to you fully. We pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.